ask you with me to open God's most holy word at this point, at Exodus chapter 20. And you'll notice the chapter starts off with the statement that God spoke all of these words, that is the ten words, the ten commandments, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now that uh, second verse, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, is an introduction not just to the first commandment, which follows it immediately thereafter, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, but it is indeed an introduction to all ten of the commandments that follow. In other words, we need to see that the ten commandments, uh, according to Exodus 20, where they are for the first time introduced in Scripture, are never stated to be the way of salvation by which we can earn salvation by keeping them. To the contrary, at this first mention of the Ten Commandments in Scripture, they are specifically stated to be the way in which we thank God for having saved us. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee, past tense, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And therefore, as it were, thou shalt have no other gods before me. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me for having redeemed you by my own mighty arm, well then, keep my commandments and do not have any gods before me. Now, I think it's interesting that we approach God's word in this, in this sense. Of course, it's true that the law, including the Ten Commandments, is our schoolmaster unto Christ, <clears throat> that is to say, it is by the sharp exposition of the word of God that we realize that we are lawbreakers, that is sinners, for sinners uh, are lawbreakers, for sin is the transgression of the law. And uh, one of the sweetest uses of the law is that in its proclamation it makes people aware of the fact, unsaved sinners, that they are undone and come short of the glory of God and make their exodus from their own uh, works righteousness by fleeing to Jesus and his finished work for redemption. However, having done that and having received redemption, by the Lord Jesus Christ, and having made their exodus from the bondage of sin, the role of the law is by no means over. It remains as a rule of gratitude and thankfulness for all those who have indeed come to Christ and who are indeed saved. That's why it's so very strange to hear people, evangelicals, and indeed some that would call themselves Calvinists say, Yahoo, yippee, once saved, always saved. I took Jesus as my Savior. I can never be lost, free from the law, happy condition, sin all I want. There's always remission. This is not the language of Scripture. The language of Scripture is, if I really am uh, redeemed by the blood of Christ, then I will be so grateful to him 
for having saved me from my sins, that is, from my breaking of the law, that I will turn in horror from my law-breaking, and having laid hold of Christ, I will desire to obey him and to follow his holy law in the power of his Holy Spirit, who enables me more and more to do so for the rest of my life out of gratitude. I am the Lord, thy, the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, what does it mean when God tells us in the first of the Ten Commandments, which we are to keep out of gratitude for Christ having saved us, what does it mean when the first commandment proclaims, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, the Westminster uh, Larger Catechism, um, in dealing with this, gives us its uh, exposition and understanding of, uh, of what this means. And it states <coughs> that, um, to or rather the Shorter Catechism, uh, tells us uh, that this first commandment requires us to know and to acknowledge God to be the only true God and to be our God and to worship and to glorify him accordingly. I'd just like to break that up into its several elements. First of all, we're told in the Shorter Catechism that this commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, requires us to know God, to know God. And to know, of course, in the Bible does not mean to give intellectual assent to. It means to be intimately acquainted with and to live with, just as a man knows his wife within marriage. And so we need to ask ourselves whether we really know God, whether we are intimately acquainted with God, whether we are living with God in the closest possible proximity. Second, while knowing God, we are to acknowledge God. That is, to admit that he is our Lord and our God, that we are under his sovereignty, are under his control, and that his word and his every wish is the law of our lives. The Shorter Catechism goes on to say, that this commandment means that we are to regard God as being the only true God. Now, of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 10 tell us that there are many gods with small g's, many idols, many so-called gods. Uh, people can make a god of themselves, of their country, of their spouse, of their children, of their hobby, of their job. They can even make a god of their church or even of their theological system. It's possible. Uh, but we are to have no other God uh, before God. He is the only true God, though there are many, many untrue gods of a great variety in the world, there is only one true God, and that is the triune God. In other words, he's the only God that there is, and he's the only God that we should ever acknowledge in our life. We should have no other God alongside of him before his eyes which he can see us paying any kind of obedience to in our life. 
He is to be the exclusive God, the exclusive object of reverence and praise in our life, in everything that we do. The Shorter Catechism gets very personal. It says this commandment requires us to know, to have intimate fellowship with, to acknowledge God, to be the only true God, and to be our God. It's not enough to know that the true God is the triune God, and that all other gods are damnable idols. We must go beyond that, and we must say and know and believe and acknowledge and experience that the one true triune God is our God, our personal Lord and Savior, that we are in contact with him, that we serve him, that he is not uh, an object out there, but he's in the closest proximity to us, our Lord and our God, even as the Apostle Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And so the question that we need to ask at this moment is whether every one of us sitting here tonight has indeed come to the point in our life as we should where we affirm that God, the true God, is indeed our God and that we know we are in the closest possible covenantal association with him and living in a personal relationship with him. Finally, the Shorter Catechism says that we are to worship and to glorify him accordingly. In other words, we are to worship God, the triune God, as the only God. Uh, this, of course, means that we are precluded from participating in all uh, ecumenical services uh, which would place our one true triune God, uh, albeit perhaps in a leading position, alongside of other gods which are not God. We can't have anything to do with that. And, of course, this was the great mistake of, of Balaam, you know, the backslidden prophet of Jehovah. He thought that he could continue to have a commitment to Jehovah while also associating ecumenically uh, with the Moabites. And this is not possible. And he came to grief. And uh, with uh, breaking down the exclusive service which is to be given to the true God alone and trying to share it and putting him in a pantheon of different gods, albeit in leading position, he came to grief and he even brought uh, Israel to grief. So we need to watch our religious associations uh, in our own life as we seek to keep this holy commandment. We are to worship the triune God, the true God, as the only God whom there is, alongside of whom all other gods are the damnable idols, which indeed they are. But we're not only to worship him, we're also to glorify him. Man's chief end is to love God and fully to enjoy him and to glorify him forever. Well now, this first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, breaks up rather naturally as does each one of the Ten Commandments, as our rule of gratitude to the Lord for saving us, into a, a positive duty which is required of us, as well as in a negative prohibition which would warn us from not doing certain things. 
And I believe it's probably uh, the uh, proper approach in dealing with the commandments to first look at what they do require us to do before turning and asking ourselves what they tell us not to do. We've got to accentuate the positive and then proceed to eliminate the negative, as it were. So first of all, we need to ask ourselves, as the larger catechism does, question 104, what are the duties that are positively required in the fourth commandment? And the answer we are given is as follows. The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and the acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God. That's similar to the language of the Shorter Catechism. And to worship and glorify him accordingly. But then, unlike the Shorter Catechism, the Larger Catechism goes on to tell us how we are to do so. It's not enough, of course, for us to know that we are to worship and glorify God as the one true God and as our personal God. We need to know how to do this. And the Catechism proceeds to tell us how to do this by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing him, believing him, trusting him, hoping in him, delighting in him, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please him, and sorrowful when in anything he is offended, and walking humbly with him. Now, the first observation which we need to make as we uh, listen to this list of ways in which we are to serve the one true triune God as the only God that there is, and indeed as our personal God, is this. Although the Shorter Catechism summarizes this and says that we are to do so by worshipping and glorifying him, uh, we should never for one moment think that this means that we are only to worship God uh, or to glorify him while we are in church. And that uh, if we have uh, worshipped God and glorified him in church, well then it doesn't really matter whether we worship and glorify him when we're outside of church. Not so, says the word of God and says the, uh, the catechism. Our worship of God is not to be restricted just to what we do in church. Indeed, there are other times when we are to worship God than merely when we are in church. For example, there is family worship. And so we need to ask ourselves whether all of us sitting here really do hold family worship as well as church worship. For indeed, if we are not holding family worship, then we are, to some extent, breaking the first commandment, even if we are worshipping God in church on Sundays and at the Wednesday night prayer meeting. And then we must go one step further. In addition to family worship, we are required to worship God personally, each on our own. 
And perhaps, too, there should be a short period of worship at the beginning of each day in the day school, as has historically been the practice of uh, Christian schools in the West, whether public or private, until very recently, and in some cases continuing to this day. And perhaps we also need to go one step further and ask ourselves whether God should not also be worshipped for a short period um, at the beginning of uh, football matches. You may not know this, but in the United States, even today, at important uh, football matches, it begins with a very short time of worship. Sadly, often of a very perfunctory ma uh, manner, but nevertheless, uh, it is an established custom. And um, one wonders uh, whether this would not be a good thing to institute uh, a short time of worship uh, at the beginning of football matches. As a minister in the United States, I've several times been asked to come to the football field just before a match takes place and open with prayer and a short time of worship, which uh, I found quite interesting and quite extraordinary. But the more I think of it, perhaps this is indeed what we, one of the many things that we should be pushing for at the appropriate time uh, throughout the world, at a different time in each nation of the world, depending upon the degree of Christianization of the nation, as we move forward in Christian reconstruction, in bringing the whole world under the law of God, and indeed, in this case, under the first commandment. But I've also met some Christian employers who think it important to have a very short period of worship at the beginning of the day, and who assemble their factory workers round them, and who ask the blessing of Jehovah at the beginning of the day's labor to bless them in their undertaking. And, of course, too, uh, at Christian universities, uh, this is the practice of the lecturer. At the beginning of the uh, lecture, uh, regardless of whether it's a theology lecture or a lecture in atomic physics or in history or in microbiology or whatever it may be. So, uh, I believe that we need to see that the worship that the first commandment requires us to bring to Jehovah is wrongly restricted to church worship alone, and that there are many times of the day, uh, of each day indeed, when we should be consciously worshipping God. However, this commandment is not exhausted. Merely when we are worshipping God, we are also required to glorify God. You see, there are only some times of each day when we are consciously worshipping God in an act of, say, closing our eyes, bowing our head, reading of scripture or praying, uh, such as prayer right before uh, meals, uh, before breakfast or before supper is a short act of worship. But the rest of the day, when we're not worshipping God, we are still required to glorify him. The word of God says so clearly, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your power. Uh, we read in the book of Ecclesiastes, as the preacher tells us, because indeed God has put the whole world in the heart of man that uh, man should 
uh, think about from beginning to end without being able exhaustively to fathom it. You know what that means? That means that your whole life and my whole life, even when we're not consciously worshipping God, should be dedicated to his glorification in whatever we do. Because this is man's chief end and purpose in life. To love God, to enjoy him, but fully to glorify him forever. And so we need to ask ourselves, have we really been glorifying God with every breath of air? Uh, that we ha ever have taken and continue to take until the moment that we die. Well, the catechism then gets specific, giving us a list of ways in which we can and should be glorifying God every second in everything uh, that we do. It says that we glorify God by thinking about him by meditating about him, by remembering him. That means when you and I are on the job, on the tennis court, in the kitchen, on the way to school, or whatever, and certainly in church, we are to think about God, to meditate even while we work, to remember his word, and to commemorate it, and to link his holy word uh, with what we see round about us. We went on a long hike today, and uh, we came across a, uh, a tree uh, that was being strangled by a parasite growing around it. So I stopped the children we were with and I said, you know, you see that uh, tree with the parasite strangling it to death? That reminds me, children, just of, of sin. Uh, sin, just like that parasite uh, strangling the tree, cannot exist or support itself without the tree to hang on to, so can sin, which is a parasite, uh, not support itself without uh, parasitically uh, parasiting on uh, us. Uh, the sin of lies, for example, is slavishly dependent upon the use, the misuse of our tongue. The sin of theft is impossible without the abuse of the God-given hand and so forth. But just as uh, that creeper thing growing round that tree will itself die and fall down after having strangled the tree to death, so will uh, sin after it has strangled man to death itself fall down flat and die because sin is not substantial sin can only exist in association with something good which it perverts and that's why it's so stupid to sin because sin ultimately is destined uh, to disappear it, it cannot sustain itself independently you see and so, whether we go marching down the mountainside and looking at the trees, we are, while doing this and enjoying God's creation, it seems to me, required to bring what we see into constant association with loving God, the Lord our God, as the one true triune God and only God and indeed our God in all that we do. But then the Catechism goes on to say that we are positively to keep this commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, by highly esteeming and by honoring and by adoring God. To highly esteem God and to honor him and to adore him. Please notice that this adoration and this honoring of God is again not limited 
to Sunday worship services. It's not limited to our quiet time as we worship God at home. But we are to adore God perpetually in all that we do. It is a full-time task. And then we're told that we are to keep this commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, by choosing, by loving, and by desiring, and by fearing God. Uh, by choosing God. Every moment of every day we are being thrust into situations, especially when we live in an ungodly environment, we're being thrust into a situation where we're being required to choose between following God and his honor or doing something else for a different reason. And what we need to do is to choose God consciously. Second, we are to love God. We're not just to love God when we're in church. We're not just to love God when we are reading and studying his word, at family worship, but we are to love God every minute of the day, no matter what it is that we're doing. You see? And this is a positive command which God gives us. We are to desire God. Uh, we are to want him. We are to say with the psalmist, I have nobody in heaven or on earth outside of you, O oh God. There is nothing else that I desire other than you and you alone. And then we are to fear God. It is indeed the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. So often we meet people today who fatuously and superciliously allege that they love God and then if we ask them, well, do you also fear God? They say, no, of course not. Fear is negative. We shouldn't fear God. God doesn't want us to fear him. He just wants us to love him. Ah, oh, I think you will find that people that make that claim do not really love God at all. For indeed, the, the love of God... The proper love of God cannot exist for one second without the accompanying fear of God. And we're not told in the word of God that it's the love of God that is the beginning of wisdom. We're told that it is the fear of God that is the beginning of the wisdom. As John Calvin said, Le crainte du Seigneur est le commissement de science. The, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. His motto taken from the book of, of Proverbs. So, Ask yourself whether you fear God. By the way, if you go looking for a wife, those uh, of you who are unmarried, please don't go looking for a woman that loves God. They're really uh, a dime a dozen, as we say in the United States, uh, at every Bible college. Go look for a girl that fears God. They're a lot rarer. Because um, <laughs> the book of Proverbs, you see, at the end of Proverbs 31 does not say a woman that loves God shall be praised. It says a woman that fears God shall be praised. Now, of course, if a woman fears God, she will love God. It's impossible to fear God without loving God. But sadly, it is possible to say that you love God without fearing him or indeed even loving him. And so the fear of the Lord is the real test, I think, in the godliness in a woman, and indeed in godliness in a man, and in usefulness in his service, because it's the very beginning of wisdom, this fear of the Lord. When we first come to God to serve him, we must come with fear 
and with trembling, realizing that he is the holy, the august, the awesome, sovereign dictator of the universe before whom we have no rights and before whose feet we can but prostrate ourselves in the dust to serve him. And yet today we have so many even Joe say, Oh, your God is my devil. And you wonder whether indeed they are worshipping the same God as uh, we should worship because there is no real fear of God in these people. You see it reflected in their unfearful, disrespectful modes of worship of God in their church on music, which they call church music, but which is really on music, uh, in their ungodly walk before the Lord. Oh, I would urge you, if you think that you love God, to make sure that you also fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole purpose and the whole circle of man's requirements. For God shall bring every man and every woman into judgment according to every work which he or she has done, whether that work be good or evil. This is the God of the Bible. Uh, if this God is your devil, well, I'm sorry, but this is the only God that there is. This is the one true God, uh, the only God that must be your God, alongside of which there is no other God that really is God, but which is but a demon masquerading as God and falsely claiming to be God. Do you fear God? And then in the next group of ways in which we are positively required to serve God as our God in terms of the first commandment, we are told to believe him and to trust him and to hope in him. Now those are strong words. Um, really, um, the first two, believe and trust, have a similar thrust. Uh, it's one thing to say that we believe in God. Hock twice, believe Jesus. No, that's not the meaning. The meaning of believing in God and trusting God is that of not just saying that we can accept that there is a God and saying that we can accept that his son Jesus Christ died on the cross and in saying that we accept that in some way what his son did on the cross avails for us. That's not enough. We've got to really believe that God. We've got to really trust that God. And the root idea here is we must carefully listen to that God. Patho, akuo, we must obey him. We must rest our full weight upon him as I am now doing on this table. And you see that? Letting my full weight pressure down onto this table. And that's what you and I have got to do in the way in which we depend upon God. God is not an appendix to our life. God is not merely to be central in our life. But God is the undergirding and the foundation of our life on whom we must put our full weight. Or we do not truly believe or trust in him at all. We're also to do so with great confidence. Uh, for the larger catechism now tells us we are to hope in God. And uh, the word hope in the Bible, folks, does not mean we are to kind of 
think that it's going to turn out all right. I hope so. I guess so. No, no, that's not the meaning of hope in the Bible. This hope is an absolute certainty and a sure confidence uh, that this God in whom we trust will indeed keep us by his power and that there's not the slightest possibility that he could ever let us down to hope in him. We are to delight in him and to rejoice in him. I love that, don't you? Uh, when we're told, thou shalt have no other gods before me, it means, says the catechism, we are to delight in God. And we are to rejoice in God. Not enough to say he's there. It's not enough to say, well, he's my savior. We are to delight in God. And to delight in his holy law, night and day. Psalm 1. And so do you truly delight in God? Do you truly rejoice in the Lord? Do you have joy in the Lord? Is he the joy of your life? Is your religion, which you think is Christian, a religion of joy and of exultation? Because it needs to be. If out of gratitude for what God in Christ has done for you, you truly are by his grace and through the in-working of his spirit attempting to keep his ten commandments out of gratitude. And I love the next statement of the catechism. Oh, I love the next statement. It says we are to be zealous for God. To be zealous for God. And that's derived from a classical root that means to be on fire for God. So often, particularly amongst our Calvinist brethren, the great frozen chosens, we find people that don't like zeal. They want an intellectual religion, but they don't like to see fire in a person. But the Calvinist catechism, my friend, says we are to be on fire for God. We are to be zealous for him. And I love particularly the footnote reference at this point. Uh, the biblical proof referred to here under being zealous for God is very clear. It refers us, amongst other things, to Romans 12 verse 11, which says we are not to be slothful in business, but we are to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And if you look at the Greek, you'll see it actually says we are to be fervent, that is on fire, in the spirit. We are to be burning in the power of the Holy Ghost. There is to be a fire in your heart and a fire in my heart every moment of every day. Whether we eat or whether we drink or whether we uh, look at uh, ferns while walking down the mountainside or when we put fires out or whether we, when we teach geometry or, or when we preach on the pulpit or whether we wash up dishes in the kitchen we are to do it with a fire of the Holy Ghost burning in our heart. Oh, that we would truly keep this first commandment as God requires us to do it. What a difference it would make in our impact on those with whom we come into contact, particularly in uh, circles outside of the church as we meet unbelievers. If when they look at us, they see us burning with the fire of the Holy Spirit in whatever we're doing in our commoner garden, down-to-earth daily tasks. Further, we are positively to call upon him, to give him praise and thanks. 
You know, gratitude and thanksgiving is one of the most important things in the Christian life. I don't know about you, but I feel so sad. Uh, not so much if I help people and they neglect to say thank you to me, but if I see someone else help another person and that other person neglects to say thank you to the one who helped him and would seem not even to be aware of the fact that he should be thankful. We are to be a thankful people and a grateful people. Politeness and gratitude uh, really cost nothing. But to whom should we be more polite? To whom should we be more grateful than the God in whom we live and move and have our very being? To the God who has created us, to the God who in Christ Jesus has redeemed us on the cross, to the God who on the day of Pentecost came down into his church and put the fire of God in their heart to keep them burning warmly and brightly. Oh, what kind of Christians are we, pray tell me, if we do not give all praise and thanks to God in all things to be thankful. And it's not easy, is it, to learn to give God thanks in everything. If we get setbacks, if somebody breaks our heart, uh, if uh, we get slandered uh, quite unjustly, uh, do we find it easy to give thanks then? Even when we're confused, even when we feel that the whole world is crashing down under our feet and that God has abandoned us precisely at that time. In terms of the first commandment, are you and I obliged before Almighty God to give thanks to him? And if you're anything like me, you'll know that when you rediscover this, and when you see that for some time past you have not been careful enough to give thanks to God in all things being thankful, not only do you feel a heal, but when you finally start to give thanks to him, and it may be so bad that you say, well, Lord, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't have too much to give thanks to you about, because you've been rough on me recently, Lord. Uh, well, write it down on a list, my friend. Make two columns. Put in the left-hand column all the things that you think God has done to you unjustly that you didn't deserve and that you honestly don't feel right now you can thank God for. Put them down. But then having done that, and put a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand things down if you think God has given you a miserable time so you can't think of anything else, then ask yourself whether there's not one nice thing that you've received from God that you can be thankful for. And you find that there is in a list and put those things down. And when you get through putting those things down in the right-hand column, I think you'll agree that while writing them down, you have become grateful to God for those things that you now realize you should be thankful for and are being thankful for as you're writing them down in the right-hand column. And having done that, you're in the right frame of mind to now go to the left-hand column with a long list of how God's been kicking you around and then say, now, Lord, let me look at this list and give me the grace to be thankful to you for these things because each one of these things that has happened to me that has been very unpleasant to me has taken place by your determinate counsel and foreknowledge in order to trim the miserable rough edges off me to more and more fashion me into the image of your dear son. I think that's the way to do it. That's the way I do it. And I'll tell you, I don't go very far down the left-hand column and I feel so very ashamed that I have been drifting away from God into an attitude of ungratefulness and unthankfulness. I would go as far as to say this, that the first symptom 
of a dedicated Christian beginning to drift away from his God is the diminution of gratitude and thankfulness toward Almighty God by that Christian in all things, even when the difficulties and the challenges and the tribulations begin to fall. That's where I think we've got to watch it. And then the Catechism says that we are to have no other gods before the true God and to serve him alone by yielding all obedience to him and all submission to him in the whole man. Now, notice, it doesn't say that we must submit to God most of the time or obey him most of the time. It says we must submit to God and obey God all of the time. And to submit to God means to place ourselves under his holy law, under his yoke. Jesus tells us this is not a hard thing to do. He tells us that his yoke that he will give us is light. But make no mistake about it. If you are not under the yoke of King Jesus, if you are not in submission to his law, to him who said, if you really do love me, then keep my commandments, you are no Christian at all. A Christian is one who has submitted to Almighty God in Christ and who continues to submit to him more and more in all things, all the time, more and more, yielding all obedience and submission to him. In our heart, yes, but not only in our heart, the Catechism says with the whole man. In other words, your heart, your eyes, your ears, your nose, your moustache, your hands, your sexual parts, your appendix, your feet, your hobbies, there is not one aspect of your being or mine where we are not required constantly, moment by moment, to go on submitting to the Lordship of the triune God in Christ, the only God, the only true God, as our God and our Lord and our God. And then we are to be careful, to be careful, says the Catechism, in all things to please him. To be careful to please him in all things. It's not too frequent these days, but I have seen it, particularly in earlier days, of some women that worship their husbands. And those women are careful, careful to please their husbands in all things. It's as if they're waiting on their husbands like a slave night and day. Today, of course, we've gotten emancipated from this. And I'm not defending it, but I'm saying this. That that's exactly the way in which we need to be towards Almighty God. To be careful to please Almighty God in all things without exception. We cannot take any shortcuts with God. We are his slaves. We are utterly prostrate and to be utterly submissive unto him at his feet in all that we do. We are to be careful in all things. We are to take care. We are to be picky, unishly and precisely and puritanically exact in our understanding of the entire gamut of the duties of man to Almighty God. We're to be careful to please God, to make God happy, to make God happy, to do the things that he's told us will make him happy when he sees his children do them. And then we are to be sorrowful when in anything God is offended. 
Oh, it should grieve us when we realize that God is in any way being offended by anything that we do. And last, in the catechism on the positive way of keeping this commandment, we are to walk humbly before God. Micah says, what more does God want? In the whole summary of the Ten Commandments, having summarized the Ten Commandments, especially in the way in which we bring our tithes to him, in the way in which we observe his holy days. Micah then says, and what does God really require other than this? To walk humbly before our God. To be quiet and to be reverent when we come before his presence. To get very low before him, not to get assertive before him, not to try to bargain with God, but to be humble and to be submissive before him. As Andrew Murray once said, the three greatest qualities in a Christian are humility, humility, and humility, <laughs> to be humble before God. And that is so, so true. He the creator, and we the creature. Well now, now that we know what we are to do positively, uh, to have no other gods before him, so that he can be the greatest God and the only God for us, our God, we must now in conclusion see what we are to avoid doing negatively in order not to arouse his ire. Question 105 of the larger catechism, what are the sins forbidden in the first commandment? The sins forbidden in the first commandment are atheism, in denying or not having a God. Well, obviously, a person who says there is no God is breaking this first commandment which says thou shalt have no other God before me. Except I'd like to say this, that there really is no such a thing as an atheist. People who say that they are atheists are not atheists. They either make a God out of themselves or they make a god out of the principles of dialectical materialism, if they are communists. I've made a study of communism. Communists claim to be atheists, but the fact of the matter is that the communist insists that everything in the universe operates in accordance with the laws of dialectical materialism, the laws of power, in other words. You see, although the communist says there is no god at all, the fact is that power is his god. And you recall that interesting little comment in the book of Habakkuk, which, after describing the fearsome appearance and aspect of the Babylonian people coming to destroy God's people, the prophet says, halfway down or toward the end of chapter 1, but beware, he whose God is power. Not everybody has Jehovah as his God. But you will find that those who say they are atheists, who say there is no God at all, do have a God themselves or the principle of power of the dialectic, of the dynamic uh, in the universe. So the atheists uh, are breaking this commandment. And by the way, there's two kinds of atheists. Perhaps you haven't realized this. There's the theoretical atheist and there's the practical atheist. The theoretical atheist says, quote, there is no God. God says he is a fool. That is to say, morally depraved. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. But do you know that the church is full 
of practical atheists. The practical atheist does not say there is no God. Indeed, he says, Jesus is my Lord. But having said that, he goes out and he acts in many areas of life as if there is no God in practice, no law of God to monitor what this uh, Jesus speaker actually does once he's out there in the real world. He is an atheist. And Arminianism, my friend, leads to atheism. Because the God of Arminianism is the God who is our tool to get us out of the hole and to save our own miserable, wretched soul for our own sake and not for the glory of the true God. Let us make quite sure that in our profession that we love Jehovah, we are not practical atheists. However, there's another way in which this commandment can be broken than just by atheism, whether theoretical or practical. It's also broken by idolatry. By idolatry. And here we're using the word idolatry in the sense of having or worshipping more gods than one. In other words, polytheism. You say, oh, well, we don't have polytheism today. Maybe a few old Maoris left that are polytheists, but we're not polytheists. Oh, we aren't? Listen, a person who says, I have the big God, the great spirit, Jehovah Jesus, but then in addition to that, I also highly respect and in fact worship my wife, my old school tie, my country, my trade union, my bank balance. My friends, you are a polytheist! A Western polytheist. Now, I'm not saying don't love your wife. I'm not saying don't save money. But I'm saying when you do love your wife, don't love her because she's your wife. But love her as a creature of Almighty God and only because Almighty God tells you to love her as your wife so that in loving your wife it is God whom you love. And you love your wife because God tells you to love her. Not because she becomes an object entitled to your love if there were no God at all either. No. Then you're making an object of worship out of her. But, but how many people that go to church and that profess faith in the Lord Jesus in their love life of their spouse or of their secretary or whatever or of their bank balance go ahead with this sort of thing without any reference to the God who created all things in the universe. My friend, that is to break in some way this first commandment. It is. And then we're told, we commit idolatry or polytheism not only in having or worshipping more gods than one, but also when we have gods instead of or in the place of the true God. These are people who, having worshipped the true God in church, leave the church and then discuss sport, rugby, or whatever else it is, the rest of the Sabbath day. Well, the fact is they have two gods. They've had their 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock on Sunday morning gods, Jehovah. When they're through with him, they then have their rugby god from 12 noon to 2 or 3 in the afternoon, or whatever the case may be. My friend, then you're a polytheist then you are not worshipping God, the true God. 
the way in which he alone would be worshipped. You're transgressing the honor of his name if that's what you're doing. We are to have no other God alongside of him. The Bible says thou shalt have no other gods before me. But before there does not mean ahead of me. Uh, It does not mean you shall not have any other gods which you regard as being more important than I am. It means you shall not have any other gods before my face, in front of my eyes, alongside of me, where I can see them. As I look at you, I must be able to see that you have no other gods at all for one second of the time. There must be no other gods that I see before me when I look at you, says Jehovah. If I would be looking at one who is keeping the first commandment. We're further told that we break this commandment if we do not have this one true triune God and if we do not avouch him as God and as our God. Oh my friend, if you confess till you are blue in the face that the triune God is the only God that there is. If you get up Sunday in church and if you pray the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father and all of that and you really believe that he, God the Father, is the only God that there is. But while doing that, he's not your God, not your personal Savior. You're breaking this commandment according to the Word of God and according to the Catechism. It's further broken, this commandment, by the omission or the neglect of anything due to him. You cannot pretend to be keeping this commandment if you are only keeping this commandment 99% of the time. You to keep this commandment and I am to keep this commandment 100% of the time if we would not break it. For otherwise we omit or we neglect something which is due to this God. And let us not plead ignorance. We can't say, oh well, I didn't know that. You may say at this point, you know, you've already told me a lot of things tonight that I didn't know. I was ignorant of these things. And of course, my being ignorant of these things until tonight means they weren't sinful. No, says God. Ignorance of the holy law of God is no excuse. It is no excuse. It's like the time that uh, I didn't stop at a stop street because the stop sign was off and, uh, and the paint was off the road and I couldn't see it. It didn't help me to argue this to the traffic cop. He says, well, you say you didn't see it and the sign's off, but the fact is you should still have stopped. I mean, that's the law. Well, I was ignorant of the law, but it's no excuse. It's no excuse. And that's why we need to study the law of God precisely to find out as best as we possibly can the totality of its scope so that we can know fully what God requires us to do. Ignorance of this commandment is no excuse. Forgetfulness of this commandment is no excuse. Oh, I forgot when I got out of church just for five minutes until I got home I forgot that God is the only true triune God and my God I forgot no excuse or misapprehensions you said well until tonight I I knew that I was to have a place for God in my life and I've given him that but tonight I discover that God is to have the chief place in my life 
No, if that's all you think, you're still under a misapprehension. God is to have the only place in your life, the only claim over your life. There is to be no one else in your life apart from God, or in mine. You see, we have these misapprehensions. And Arminianism is full of this sort of thing. Give God a chance. Uh, if you want to be really happy, have joy, joy, joy. Let Jesus into your heart. Can keep everything else in your heart that you want, but just let Jesus in and then you'll be happy. That is not true. It is not true. It's to be the Lord Jesus Christ only in our heart. And nothing and nobody else except by his command and as his creatures and in acknowledgement of him. Or false opinions about God. Or unworthy and wicked thoughts about him. Or bold and curious searchings into his secrets. What are we to think of those people who do not trust God's providence for the future? Who, who uh, buy a newspaper and open it to read their horoscope? My friend, you're breaking the first commandment! If you're interested in reading a horoscope or going to a gypsy and stare into a crystal ball or weighing yourself on a weighing machine that will give you a good fortune or a Chinese fortune cookie for the day or whatever, you are tempting the providence of God. And I would be doing the same. We may not do this. We may not do this. This is a sign of ungodliness. Bold and curious searchings into his secrets, trying to establish what God would do with us in the future, other than by Bible study, to the extent that he has revealed his will for us there and there alone. And all profaneness of God, and all hatred of God, all swearing at God, or all feeling cross at God, uh, all feeling peeved at God, if he doesn't come through. I like the next one. All self-love. You see, if you love yourself, what are you really doing? You're making a God out of yourself. Of course, it could also have said, all romantic love. That is, when you deny yourself utterly and prostrate yourself totally uh, at the feet of your sexual partner, whether married to them or not, that is idolatry. That is not putting God first. That is to put another person, another creature, uh, as an object of your affections or of mine before the service of the one true God, before whose eyes we are to have no other. All self-seeking, all other inordinate and immoderate setting of our mind, our will, or our affections upon other things. You know what that means? That if we enjoy our food or our drink or our children or whatever else but we enjoy those things even if only for a moment in disassociation from God so that we would still be enjoying them even if God were not to exist while we were enjoying them we are breaking the commandment while doing that we then are then to be God conscious at all times in whatever we are doing the next is very interesting taking our affections off from God in whole or in part vain credulity that means believing things without sufficient ground to believe them 
The only one that we should ever believe implicitly and totally and immediately is God because there is sufficient ground to God. But we should not be in a hurry to believe what people ask us to believe without finding out that there are sufficient godly foundations for that. All unbelief and all heresy. Now the word heresy here does not so much mean evil teaching or apostasy it means church splitting from the Greek hierio to split I have seen so many churches split especially in the United States simply because someone does something in the church that upsets somebody else and a certain group of people walk out of the church and will fellowship no more with those other people there's nothing doctrinal in that split but it is just a a, a split because you don't want to strive to submit yourself with those other people who are indeed awkward in serving the Lord God this is a breach of the first commandment all misbelief all distrust and despair tell me have you ever despaired Some, I, I mean I do at times I admit it I say I despair of a solution but that's so wrong Particularly if we are optimistic in our eschatology, we've got no right to despair. Why not? Because God's providence rules the universe and he shall make all things right. There is never to be a theology, if we can call it that, of despair. And this is why, frankly, I, I, I almost hesitate to say the next thing, but perhaps I should just say, if you have a theology of despair, if your eschatology is desperate, is pessimistic, is defeatist, ask yourself whether, if you think the world can only get worse and worse, and that God is glorified by the world getting worse and worse, and that there's nothing you can do about it, ask yourself whether you are not questioning the providence of God and breaking his first commandment. All despair, all incorrigibleness, when we just will not be corrected, when we become stubborn and hardened, all insensibility under judgments, things go badly for us at work, in our marriages, uh, in, in our economic budgeting, or whatever. Look, my friend, this is the judgment of God. God is speaking to you and me when those things happen. And what we must do then is to prick up our ears and listen to what God is telling us. And not to be like a mule and to kick against the pricks insensibly. You know what happens, by the way, to a mule that kicks against the pricks? The pricks are those long poles with a sharpened point uh, that the man driving the mule holds behind the mule and jabs into the mule to make it go forward when it's lazy. And if the mule kicks against the pricks, and tries to kick back, all that happens is, of course, that the mule drives his own leg deeper into the point of the prick. And then the result is that the mule takes off like a comet by way of reaction and goes forward after all. And so we need to learn not to kick against the pricks because you cannot defeat God, and I can't either. Using... Uh, all uh, unlawful means trying to take pragmatic shortcuts the end justifies the means rather than waiting on the providence of God all hardness of heart all pride pride
pride, the elevation of ourself above others and indeed above God, all presumption uh, to assume that uh, she'll be right, mate, as they say in Australia. It's presumption uh, rather than following the course of God's law. All carnal security, depending upon our bank balance, depending upon uh, taking chances, depending upon next year's harvest automatically being the same as last year's good harvest, rather than depending upon God's providence. All tempting of God, all trusting in unlawful means, all carnal delights and joys. If you and I have enjoyments uh, and have sins that make us happy, but which we know are displeasing to God, we are breaking the first commandment, which says we shall have no other gods before him when we yield to these sins. All corrupt, blind, and indiscreet zeal. I read this again recently and I said to myself, this you've got to watch. I know I'm a religious fanatic. I know by the grace of God I'm zealous. But listen, my friend, if your zeal for Christ is blind, or if it is indiscreet, if when somebody has um, just had an electric shock and they're trembling, you go up to them and shake the daylights out of them and say, listen, friend, you'd better get saved because if you die in this condition, you're going to go to hell. The zeal is commendable, but it's indiscreet and the timing is, is rotten. It's like saying to a widow who's just lost her husband, Oh, sister, let me encourage you from the Bible. Here's a text, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I say again, Rejoice. Yes, you must tell her that too, but not right after she's lost her husband. You've first got to learn to weep with those that weep. You see, indiscreet zeal. All lukewarmness. Ah, ah, church of the Lord Jesus. Lukewarmness. The condition of Laodicea. Tell me, are you on fire for God? Are you fervent in spirit? As the catechism says we should be. Or are you lukewarm? Neither hot nor cold. Just nice, middle class, respectable. The communists have such a good word for it. Bourgeois. Rather than on fire for God because that is an insult to almighty God we are not to be lukewarm all deadness in the things of the Lord why do the Baptists call us the frozen chosen are they not right is this not the condition of many of us dead 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 all estranging of ourselves all staying away from the house of God, staying away from the association of Christians, many of whom irritate us with their fanaticism. All apostatizing from God. All praying or giving any religious worship to saints, to angels or to any other creature. When a Roman Catholic says that he is going to Jesus through Mary or through St. Bridget or St. Teresa or whatever else, this is a transgression of the first commandment according to our catechism. All compacts and consulting with the devil, obviously. There should be no place for witchcraft in the life of a Christian. All hearkening to Satan's suggestions. And how about this? And if you've been in a fundamentalist church in the United States, you'll know what I'm talking about. All making men the lords of our faith and our conscience. When we do no longer fear God, but when we fear 
the whim of our fundamentalistic employer with his fundamentalistic shibboleths. The fundamentalist is a man who says he believes the whole Bible backwards, forwards, upside out, uh, inside uh, out, but who has added to the Bible a whole list of fundamentalistic shibboleths which the word of God itself never required such as thou shalt not wear pointed shoes but thy shoes shall be rounded at the points I once worked for a man who had that standard and God says that um, we must have no fear of men in this regard and never allow them to be lords of our faith and conscience all slighting and despising of God and his commandments and what are we to do with people, church leaders, who say they keep uh, nine of the Ten Commandments, but they despise and trample on the Sabbath day? They slight and despise God and his commands, or some of them. All resisting and grieving of his spirit. I'm so grateful there's so much said, explicitly and implicitly, about the Holy Spirit in this first commandment. We are to be on fire with the spirit. Uh, we are to be zealous in spirit. We are to be full of the Spirit. Um, we are to not to be lukewarm, but we are to be incandescent in spirit. And here we are not to grieve the Spirit. We are to be careful to please the Spirit. For Him to cultivate His wonderful fruits in our life, love and joy and peace and long-suffering in all that we do. We are to be discontent uh, with sin and we are not to be impatient with God's dispensations. I don't know about you, but this is one of my major failings. We get impatient with God. We say, Lord, you know I can't take the strain anymore. Lord, I've asked you a million times to give me relief and you haven't. And God says, be patient, my son. You say, Lord, I'm about to break. You know what we're really saying? We're saying, God, you're not really so smart. If you were really smarter and you knew the strain that I'm going through, you would have given me relief long, long ago. That's what we're really saying when we're impatient with God and the rate at which he moves and when we charge God foolishly for the evils that he inflicts upon us or if we ascribe the praise of any good that we either are, have or can do to fortune or to idols, or to ourselves, or to any other creature. Uh, that's when Christians say, you know, fortunately, when I was crossing the road, this happened. No, my friend, not fortunately, but by the providence of Almighty God. Or when you say, I want to thank God for all that he's done, and I did the right thing at the right time. No, it was God who moved you in spite of your timidness and cowardice to do the right thing at the right time thou shalt have no other gods before Jehovah Jesus the triune God the one true God who is to be your Lord and your God and mine questions are you ready to go home <laughs> Well now here again you've got to understand I'm a fanatic and I'm a reactionary and you've got to take into account that, that, uh, that I have been a Roman Catholic and uh, uh, to some extent I'm reacting against it. 
Uh, but I personally feel uncomfortable with crosses in churches on top of steeples. Not only because Rome overdoes it, uh, but because the Word of God nowhere uh, enjoins us to have crosses, still less requires us to have crosses. Now, the Lutherans, of course, they said, well, as long as the Bible doesn't prohibit it, it's all right. But generally, the Calvinists have said, nothing's all right unless the Bible specifically enjoins it for church worship. And the matter is not quite as innocent as, as uh, one might think. It's stated, ah, oh, well, the cross reminds us that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Well, now, wait a minute. Does not the Roman Catholic crucifix, the figure of Christ hanging on the cross, even more remind us that Christ died on the cross than the Protestant naked cross without the Christ figure? Second, I don't like myself being reminded of the cross on which Jesus died because I don't believe it's a dear old cross I believe as the Bible says that it is a cursed symbol there's nothing that sentimentalizes me about the wooden cross on which Jesus died other than it is a shameful and a painful way in which the son of God according to his humanity was put to death the cross on which Jesus died to me is not worth a hill of beans. Uh, the slivers and splinters of that cross are worth nothing to me. The churches of Europe are full of hooks of wood that are reputedly ascribed as being pieces of the cross on which Jesus died. And I think it's Warfield uh, uh, of Princeton who worked out you could build several houses with all of these bits of wood if you put them together uh, but you see it's my saviour that died on the cross that saved me not the cross on which he died that saved me so it's my saviour I must be reminded of and not the donkey that he rode on the fig tree which he cursed the piece of wood that he was nailed on the nails that went through his blessed hands Finally, even though we once knew Christ as the crucified one, we no longer know him as the crucified one. We know him as the resurrected one. So then, if we are to have a simple symbol in a church or on top of a steeple, I myself would be happier in the place of a wooden cross to have an arrow pointing upward to heaven, showing us that our Savior is no longer on the cross but is now in heaven. But I must say with the Heidelberg Catechism, question 100, that we should not have symbols and stained glass windows with uh, uh, pictures of this hippie alleged to be Christ or whatever in churches as books for the unlearned because it has pleased God to give his church only two pictures with which to see Jesus, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I am afraid of us getting a mild curse from God by adding to the sacraments in a semi-sacramental uh, signifying way. I believe that every word is God is pure, that all of the sacraments that God has given us must be observed pure and entire we may not add to them and subtract them and to me 
this cross thing and altar thing and bell thing and candle thing and change the the, uh, the, the the curtain behind or in front of the pulpit thing four times a year with the seasonal changes uh, is, is uh, coming perilously close perilously close to adding to the economy of revelation that God has given us in his precious infallible and ineffable written word well there's two theories about the meaning of the steeple on the church uh, one is it's a remnant of pagan phallic worship but the other and I think the other one is probably more accurate it is a representation of the church looking heavenward I'll tell you there's one thing on a church steeple that I rather liked it was a Roman Catholic church strangely enough it was in the town where Karl Marx was born Trier in Rhineland and probably in the church in which he was baptized as an ex-Jew a little boy of six too or was it a Lutheran church I can't quite remember but anyway it's this church steeple in the town uh, square and it's got a cockerel on top of the steeple not a cross a cockerel and under that it's got in Latin uh, what is it now ora uh, et labora or something watch and pray watch and pray and it's good to be reminded to watch and pray and two it was pointed out to me by these Germans that is to remind the people who look at it not to deny Jesus the way Peter denied Jesus three times before the cockerel crowed well I'd rather have a cock on a church steeple frankly than a cross but again uh, I, I'm really wondering whether it's necessary to go to these to these measures you see I think the number one mistake that Christians have made is that they've got to have a grand building in which to worship God the Puritan principle is where the word of God is where the Bible is where the spirit of God is that's where the church is you don't get a church by having a fancy building or a steeple or a cross or a preacher running around with his collar back to front or all of these things uh, and I'm not saying they're all wicked but I'm saying they, they're not commanded in the word of God they're not the essence of a church but what is the essence of a church is spirituality of worship the Bible, the whole Bible and nothing but the Bible and as a Protestant by conviction and by conversion I must tell you we will see no revival at all in the Protestant churches until we get back to the principles for which our Puritan Protestant fathers were prepared to bleed and die I believe that passionately but I put up <laughs> with some of these accretions uh, in situations where I have and continue to have the freedom to preach this kind of Protestantism because it is possible I think as an ultra Protestant or Puritan to get so superstitious that you literally refuse to preach in a church with a cross behind the pulpit and I've got a very good friend in Memphis Tennessee who said in his session if that cross goes up behind the pulpit I'm leaving and to his amazement the session says well in that case you'd better leave but that cross is going up and he did and frankly I think this was attributing far too much magical power to a piece of work. 
If I was him, I would have protested, and having done that, I would have lived with him. But I respect it, although I think it was unwise and went too far, too rigorously with, with his reformation. And what where is he today, this man? He's on top of a skyscraper in the 22nd story, preaching the gospel to 22 people that followed him out of the 600 member church. And frankly, the worshipful environment in this boardroom on the 22nd uh, story of the skyscraper is a lot less conducive to worship, I think, than the church even after it got its crossing. So, you've got to weigh these things. Right, ready to go home? Let's ask Brother Flynn to please go. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.